Hi, you're listening to The Detour by Oregon Humanities. I'm Adam Davis. This week, we're bringing you an episode extra, inspired by our episode, Communities of Contagion, with Eula Biss. Our conversation with Eula happened in 2015, long before pandemic was an everyday word. We wanted an updated conversation to take a present look at the moral responsibility we have to everybody in the time of COVID. So we spoke with Courtney Campbell, a medical ethicist at Oregon State University who engages in conversations about the ethics of vaccinations. The conversation with Courtney bridges important ideas of immunity and democracy, and we wanted to use this opportunity to share it with you. I sat down with Courtney in January 2022 at the X-Ray Studios in Portland, Oregon. One of the narratives that we've tried to put together as a country is a narrative of solidarity. We're all in this together. And yet the experience of of COVID does hit certain people and and not others. As much as I would like to say we're all in this together, and if that means everyone gets COVID, we'll pull through this together. I think our sort of culture of individual responsibility and individual differences pushes against that. What I think is is important is is an ethics of of solidarity and solidarity would mean that yes I'm concerned about my own health and I need to take precautions but I have a responsibility as a citizen in this country of being concerned for my fellows for the everybody so that if there's actions that I engage in that may put others at at some kind of you know risk then I need to modify my behaviors. It's a really difficult kind of ethical question in our society because we're so focused on personal choice, freedom, don't have restrictions on on personal liberty. And I'm not saying that these should be legally enforced or mandated. I'm just saying that there's an ethic of solidarity that should lead us to care for other persons and care for the most vulnerable. And that ethically entails responsibility to take precautions and not be so concerned about the me rather than the the everyone. I mean, it's interesting hearing you say that because I feel like that's the core of a lot of arguments about how we live in community together would be, couldn't we live in ways that show that we care about each other more? Isn't there room for more solidarity and less of a sense of what's good for me? And so that that's true when it comes to housing. It's true probably when it comes to transportation. It's in all these different ways. And now we're in a situation where when it's physical health and community health, it seems to illustrate even more clearly, even more indisputably, the challenge of a focus on individual good versus community good. And I guess, is your sense that this is in some way, an opportunity to change the story around solidarity? Or is it uh, kind of reinscribing the same story we keep telling? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. My hope is that because of the sort of social ruptures that COVID has displayed, whether it's, again, different kind of perspectives where people just do not seem to care about each other or the issues of health equity, where individuals, you know, from various marginalized communities or disadvantaged communities just haven't been able to have access to tests, to vaccines, to technological information. COVID has 
expose the social fragmentation. If we're at a kind of inflection point, what I'm hoping is that this would push us more towards social solidarity. Now, I right now, I'm not terribly optimistic about that, but I have a sense of sort of the general goodness of human beings that if a case can be made to individuals that there's more in this situation than what's good for me, there is a civic responsibility, uh, ethical responsibility, and a commitment as a citizen to seek the common good, to go back to some of the values even inscribed in the, the Constitution, that ultimately we're trying to seek a more perfect union, and that includes everyone. It's interesting, while you were talking, I was thinking about listening to the conversation that, that this conversation is going to be paired with, and that is Eula Biss six years ago, and at one point she says she, she didn't think after four years of digging into vaccines and thinking real hard about the research that she was going to come up and go, follow the rules, that that was going to be her conclusion. And in a way, she, and that in many contexts in her life, that's the last place she ends up. But with vaccines, and again, this is pre-COVID, this is sort of standard sets of vaccines, she ended up, after lots of research, basically saying, follow the rules is the best way to go. And along with that, it seems like is kind of trust that even if there's corporate incentives in here, bottom line, they're still doing community good, even if they're also enriching themselves. And I guess I want to ask you, do you feel like, especially as someone who's practiced philosophy for much of your life, which is often a, it's a sort of contradictory and countercultural endeavor, do you feel like you're surprised by where you end up when you think about how to respond to COVID, let's say? I think my views have shifted rather significantly because of, I think, the unique nature of COVID. Historically, in my field, the principle of autonomy or the principle of self-determination is sort of the be-all and end-all of medical ethics. And I've certainly done my share to promote that kind of approach. We don't want, and that's in the legacy of historical, what's called paternalism, where the state acts as a parent towards us and sort of treats us as children, or physicians treat their patients as children. And uh, so I've always been an advocate of self-determination, but there, there comes a point, and COVID has, I think, really reflected this uh, deeply to me, that uh, the narrative of self-determination, the narrative of individual liberty doesn't provide a shared narrative. It's a narrative of self-protection, and it doesn't take into account the needs of community, the needs of solidarity, the needs of people who can't because they're young, because they have disabilities, because they're from communities of, of color and so forth. They do not necessarily have the resources for self-protection. Um, so uh, I found my views about ethics in general, about philosophy moving. I mean, I'm not abandoning notions of self-determination, but saying it's, there are circumstances, and I believe public health crisis, uh, pandemic is one, where some of those uh, rights and personal liberties have to give way towards what's going to be in the common good and what can bring us all together as a, as a community. It's interesting because uh, 
I've been in nonprofit work for, you know, a couple of decades, maybe more if I am realistic about my age. And I think one of the challenges is wanting to push people towards more of a sense of solidarity. And so I'm always wondering, like, when is that appeal working? What makes mm. an appeal for more solidarity resonate and have an effect? I guess I want to ask that question of you. Do you, do you have a sense of what helps arguments or stories for solidarity land? You have to work with people's experience. You need to construct a narrative that all of us are vulnerable. We're not, we're not immune from death. We're not immune from pain. We're not even, even my students uh, in their invincibility. This conflict of individual rights and freedom and of the common good is really built into the founding documents of this country. I mean, you've got the Declaration and the Bill of Rights that are really kind of rights-oriented and individual-oriented. And you've got the Constitution that says to preserve the common good, promote a poor, uh, we the people. It doesn't say us as individuals, we the people, in order to form a more, more perfect union, provide for the common defense and so on. And it does say to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. But this conflict is built right into the very fabric of founding documents of this country. And I think what that entails is this is always going to be always going to be a difficult project to sort of commit to or develop, you know, narratives of common good or narratives of of solidarity. I myself still play basketball. It's been here and gone. And I think about the choices that go into that and the the kind of ethical choice, wanting to make sure that we're not spreading something. And then there's also a kind of, what about play? And so I think I just want to ask as a, what, what do you think about uh, the pull of play when, when ethical questions feel like they're weighing over so much of what we're doing in the world right now? Oh, that's a wonderful question. <laughs> I find that play, and it's largely, I have to say, with my grandchildren, since I'm not coaching any any longer, but play provides a wonderful escape from the realities of what we might be facing. The reason I enjoyed coaching youth basketball so much was I was able to get away from my computer, get away from my office, and just find myself in a, in a zone that where I was... I was just zoned in and working with players on skills and plays and all that stuff. I think that play is just absolutely vital to who we are as persons and absolutely vital for our continued mental and emotional health in this kind of pandemic crisis that we're facing. Do you feel like there are any questions or even a question that continues to pop up for you related to how we're living through COVID? I'd say the primary question that recurs for me is why it is that there's such a resistance to acknowledging that COVID is a severe threat and why there's such resistance to vaccinations. Again, there's a lot of reasons some of which we've talked about for that resistance or the vaccine hesitancy. Some of those predate COVID. 
I find myself bewildered at, at points about why the why the resistance even doesn't necessarily have to be these vaccines, but other kinds of contexts. I'd have to say, I mean, if you look at the primary demographic group, it's white evangelical Christians. I'm a religious believer myself. I have a hard time understanding why people that have a commitment to the healing processes displayed in scripture and, and, and the like, and see medicine as a vocation of healing, why they've opted out at the level of roughly 30% of that population, which is kind of the largest religious broad community in the United States. I mean, it's, there's some dissonance there that I just, I, I just need to explore, it's, but it's a recurring question. Thank you. I do think, in a way, uh, bewilderment is a fitting place to conclude. But for now, what I want to say, Courtney, is thank you for the thinking you have been doing and for sharing some of your questions, your thinking, and your bewilderment. I really appreciate the time talking with you. Well, thank you very much. You can find information about Courtney's work and publications in the show notes on our website, oregonhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to this episode, Extra by the Detour. See you next time.